Welcome back to the Uncover Up Conspiracy Theory Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lee Kunle, and today with me is... Nathan Radke. But no Elena Papianis. No. Uh, I mean, she's okay. She is here, alive and well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not abducted by the Illuminati. Or the aliens. Nope. Or Courtney Love. As far as we know. But a tree did kind of fall on her life. Yes. Yes. Not her, not her personally, but her personal life. But her fell, life. Fell yeah. on her house and backyard and, and most things in between. So she's busy dealing with that. Oh, yeah. It was wild. But don't worry. Nobody was hurt. Yep. She could have been badly hurt. That's right. Like it missed her by a couple minutes. Huh. You know, this is actually a thing. You know, there's paranoia where you believe that the world conspires against you. And then there's pronoia where you believe that there are forces that are keeping you safe. Oh, like a... Like a guardian angel exactly, or something like exactly. that. Exactly, uh, so, so what is it when you believe that the universe does not notice you or care about you at all? Hmm. Realism? Well, sure. That's what we think. <laughs> but don't worry about Lena. She's okay. She'll be back. And as far as we know, the tree was acting alone. Yes. Not part of a larger... It wasn't part of some kind of... or pronoid conspiracy. No. Neither. Some kind of anti-Elena movement. It's fine. She'll be back. She'll be back. And we have a lot of upcoming podcasts that we're super excited about because we have been away for a while. It's been, there's been a hiatus of a couple of weeks, which we weren't so happy about. And we're back starting a, well, it's not, it's not quite a series. There's, there's sort of loosely hanging together episodes that will relate to each other once we have put them all together. Yeah, there's got to be a catchier way to say that. <laughs> okay. It's a, it's a suite. We'll figure it out in editing. It, in fact, yeah. this will be our 9-11. This is part of our 9-11 suite. That's right. I, except you won't notice it in this episode because we're starting way back in the time machine, somewhere completely different in a completely different place. Yeah, because in order... This is actually a thing that a lot of, uh, a lot of you guys have asked us to do, and we listen to you. You would like us to discuss 9-11. In order for us to discuss 9-11, we have to start... Like, we're going to start in the 40s. That's right. Ideally, I'd like to start in, like, the 1800s, maybe. Yeah, I mean, even that makes me feel uncomfortable. I, it would be good to start somewhere around, I don't know, the year zero. Yeah, yeah, but, that sounds about right. Because everything was as a result of something that happened before it so you have to really go quite far back you have to you have you have to keep going back and back and back but we've decided that we don't have time for that so we are going to start basically at world war ii okay somewhere around the 40s uh which we were discussing um before the podcast started as being a really pivotal point in world history where so much of what happens afterwards is really predicated upon the events of the well the second world war and how that ends and and what happens afterwards yeah because i think one of the main drivers one of the main drivers i mean obviously history is a big complicated mess but one of the main drivers of history for like 200 years before world war ii was uh, european colonialism for Mm -hmm. example uh, the empires, the, the European empires, as they reached around the world to try to grab as many of the other countries as they could and mm-hmm. to exploit the resources mm-hmm. and to assert their global dominance. Mm-hmm. But then after World War II, we see a lot of those former empires basically destroyed. I mean, World War II was sort of the end of the English empire. I mean, sure, they had the Falkland Islands War eventually, but come on. No, it, um, it's really the changing of the guard in a way where i mean in the 1800s where we would have liked to have started this podcast you used to say that the sun never sets on the british empire it was so vast it spread across more than half the globe that was literally true i mean when it was morning in india it was you know i don't know what midday in england and it was evening in canada if that's the that is the right way that the sun goes. I don't know. If Lee got that wrong, shout at us. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it was a big thing. But by, you're right, by the time uh, World War II ends, England is not really the player it had been. And uh, there are now 
excuse me, there are now new players on the block, new emergent players who will really take over the mantle of kind of supreme world power. Yeah, you can't understand the 20th century without discussing the big fight, uh, I think, of the 20th century, which was the war between the communist Soviets and the capitalist Americans. Yeah, I, I, and I think we've we've touched on this in previous podcasts, just how many things were justified, were rationalized, were even conceived of because of the intensely scary existential question that the Cold War presented. If you got those things wrong, if you got the answers to those questions wrong, your civilization is over. Yeah, a lot of the podcasts we've already done actually, of course, were about the Cold War. If we were talking about the space race, mm -hmm. we're talking about the Cold War. If we're talking about MKUltra, we're talking about the Cold War. Uh, even our first podcast, going way oh, yeah, back, right. was on Project Stargate. Yeah, which was this mind control, uh, you know, psychic ability uh, program that the CIA was doing, precisely because they were in engaged in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, who they thought were doing the same thing. Yeah. And of course, we have to say this. We've said this so often at this point, and I'm about to say it again. The reason that there was so many weird ways of fighting this war is because they couldn't fight the war between the Soviets and the Americans after 1947. They couldn't fight this war in a normal way because, of course, of... Nuclear weapons are just too big <laughs> to actually use. I mean, yes... They were used, I know, in the Second World War by the Americans against the Japanese. But if you actually think about a war where that is the primary weapon that's being used, there's, I mean, that's the end of humanity. That's the end of maybe all life. It's yeah. And I mean, it's horrifying as the weapons that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki were. By the time you get into the well, things really heat up in the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, you've got hydrogen bombs that are a hundred times right. more powerful than those weapons. You have Tsarbama, which was the largest explosion we've ever made. There is a uh, one of many documentary films called The Atomic Cafe, which is based on a lot of um, uh, American, but also I think to some extent Chinese and, and Soviet documentary footage made by the soldiers and people you know, watching these tests go down. And it just gets more and more intense. And every time they come up with a new bomb, it's like, well, this is a hundred times what was exploded at Hiroshima. This is a thousand times. And it just, I mean, there was a point, and I think we've, we might have talked about this on a previous podcast, where the scientists themselves were not sure if the test was going to set the atmosphere on fire. Yeah, that was the first time the Americans detonated a hydrogen bomb. And they asked the question, is it possible when we set off this bomb it will cause a chain reaction and all of the hydrogen molecules and all the atmosphere will catch on fire. And they did not know the answer to There's that. There's only one way to find out. <laughs> you got to set off that bomb. So this is tons of fun. And we are talking sort of vaguely, we will be talking vaguely about the precursor events to 9-11. But what is this podcast today actually about? We're starting in the 1940s. And what are we talking about? Well, it's interesting because we have... Here's an organization that we have talked about before. They've come up many, many times. But we've never really overtly discussed them or their origins. So today, uh, in order to talk about September 11th and the events of September 11th, you can't do that without discussing a bit of a history of uh, American involvement, uh, American hidden secret involvement in other countries. And you can't do that without, of course, talking about the Central Intelligence Agency. Okay. And I think that's true no matter what side of the 9-11 debate you're on, you would, would see the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, as somehow central in this plot, in this story. Right. No, and I think, no pun intended. But I think then we really need to start there, right? Yeah. So, so what is this thing, the CIA, that you keep mentioning? All right, let's go back to where we almost always go back, which is World War II. Oh, okay. All right, so in World War II, in 1942, the Americans have gotten into the war. Pearl Harbor has happened, and then the, uh, the Nazi government declared war on America, and so America declares war on Germany, and now America's totally in this war. FDR, uh, President Roosevelt, he realizes that Obviously, one of the ways this war is fought is through information, through spying, through propaganda, through subversion, through sabotage. And the Americans don't have an organization which is completely devoted and dedicated to that. 
1942, the Americans formed the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS. Uh, and that is their mandate to spy, to do propaganda, to do covert political activities, to carry out assassinations. Uh, the other thing that they start to do is they start to work on weird scientific projects that could aid them in this in this area, especially in things like assassination. Hmm. Uh, give you one example. They figured out in psychological warfare that apparently they they argued that Japanese soldiers were ashamed by the smell of their own solid waste. Hmm. And so very polite way of putting that. Thank you. I was as I was saying that <laughs> sentence, I'm like, how's this sentence gonna end? And I think I I think I landed you it. You did that well, yeah. So they actually came up with something to give to people to secretly spray Japanese soldiers that smelled like poop. Huh. That's the kind of stuff that they were getting up to. Okay. Psychological warfare, new science, weird stuff. And some traditional espionage, too. Right? Oh, yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have to say, this strikes me as somewhat surprising that it would be as late as the Second World War, where the United States sort of realizes that it requires a spy agency. Yeah, and the reason for that, I think, is something that whenever uh, we talk to people about this, people are always shocked to hear this. America, as a, a weird experimental country, when it was formed, one of the main principles they claimed to have was that they were going to mind their own damn business, mm. that they weren't going to mess with other countries. Mm -hmm. Like the founding fathers, you can see so many quotations from Washington or Jefferson where they talk about this idea that we're going to mind our business. Mm -hmm. We're only concerned with what happens in our own country and what happens outside of our own country. That's that's not for us to, to deal with. Mm -hmm. and, and and that prevented or delayed, let's say, America's involvement in World War One as well, where that was for the first two something years of the war. Um, uh, Woodrow Wilson was was trying to keep America out of the war precisely for this reason. Yeah, he even won uh, election in 1916 with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. Right. The American people didn't want to go to wars. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you think about the history of European countries for hundreds of years, it was just a constant state of nonstop, ridiculous, pointless warfare. Yeah. Now, let me just play the devil's advocate and, and, and give a bit of a counter history here, because... You're right to note that America had this self-conception of being isolationist. That's what they were claiming. That's right. We do have this thing called the Monroe Doctrine, which came earlier than the than the uh, First World War. It's by uh, the fifth president. I'm not sure. James Monroe in mm -hmm. the uh, late 1800s. And uh, he was actually concerned about things that were going on in South America and whether they would not maybe affect American interests after all. Yeah, basically he was trying to keep Europe out of, out of America. That's right. And, and this is actually... Uh, so maybe I should, I should uh, put out here that I teach courses on uh, political history. And one of them that I teach is on the history of revolutions. And... One of the things that is so remarkable is that in almost every, well, certainly every revolution that I've looked at, uh, there are other countries involved in the domestic politics of the country that is uh, experiencing a revolutionary situation. Yeah, I think the best way to explain that is to look at some quick examples. You got the American Revolution. That's right. The, the French are helping out the American revolutionaries because the French hate the English. That's right. Which is so often the case. It's it's you have a you don't actually necessarily as a country believe in the ideals of the people you're funding. You just have a bigger fish to fry. You have an enemy that you really want to get back at, and the best way to get back at them is to fund their enemies. Right. Like even if they're unsuccessful, even if they're all massacred, you could still think to yourself, "Still, I have hurt my enemy." That's right. So. It, it it took time. It took resources. So you mentioned the French helping the American revolutionaries to stick it to the British. That's right. That the Spanish helped the Haitian slaves to stick it to the French because yep. the Spanish and the French were at war at that time, and on it goes. I mean, the Germans helped Lenin get into um, the Soviet, uh, well, into Russia uh, to to stir up trouble because the Germans are at war with the Russians. And also in that war, there was some rumors that the Germans were willing to help the Mexicans 
fight oh, yeah. against America, although Mexico wasn't really into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mere, like the fact that other countries take a, <laughs> a an interest and often have a role to play in destabilizing or in somehow dramatically affecting the domestic politics of other countries is is has been part of the political game, uh, certainly in the modern period and most likely before. Yeah. And what we're talking about today is we're going to be looking at two revolutions. Mm. And one thing, one of the many things that these two revolutions have in common is that the CIA was involved with both of them. Mm -hmm. The CIA, American foreign policy, was interfering with or shaping or guiding, depending on how charitable you want to be, they were guiding some of these revolutions, not necessarily to help the people of those countries, as we'll see. Yeah. And I think it's important just to mention or to reiterate what you were just saying there, that this isn't necessarily that the CIA starts these revolutions, that they guide them, but they are involved in them, and they probably wouldn't have turned out the way they did if the CIA hadn't been there. Yeah, I mean, there's, and when we get into specifics, we'll get into this, there's always a lot of historical, economic, social reasons Mm -hmm. that make a country sort of ripe for revolution. Mm Mm-hmm. But then the CIA in both of these cases sort of went in and just sort of like, just poked it. Yeah. And I, it's, it's kind of depressing looking at this history because they seem to always poke the wrong guy, support the wrong group. Yeah. I mean, not the kind of people that I would have wanted them to have supported. Yeah. You know? No. And Looking back in the past. And that's definitely going to be another thing that these revolutions have in common is that it's a tragedy to think of the suffering and the lack of human freedom that maybe could have been avoided if Mm -hmm. history had gone a different way. Which is always what I think of whenever you talk about the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So which Uh, which one are you looking at here? What's going to start us off? Let's start off fairly early on in the history of the CIA. The OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, as, as we said, was formed during World War II for secret stuff. It was dissolved in 1945 when World War II ended. In part because Truman was very concerned and suspicious of this kind of warfare and the possibility that it could be misused or, uh, or that things could go badly or it could be what traced could back to... What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, what could happen? Well, let's find out. But then, after a couple years of the Soviets basically just eating the Americans' lunches in intelligence, mm-hmm. there was all sorts of Soviet spies that were secretly high up in British Parliament... Mm-hmm. There was, of course, uh, the Americans were confident and and happy with themselves because they were the only ones with the atomic bomb, Mm -hmm. which made them feel safe. Mm -hmm. And then by 1947, that's no longer the case. Right. The Soviets have... uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg get the plans from Los Alamos, the Los Alamos project, and funnel them over to the Russians. Although Ethel... Yeah, Ethel probably had a little to do with it. It's true. Yeah. And uh, they they had a ton of spies who were working on this. And so in 1947, the Soviets have the bomb. It becomes clear that the Cold War is now, like, on. Mm -hmm. And so Truman says, yeah, we clearly need to have some kind of agency that is going to be working in this field of intelligence. And so that is the, of course, Central Intelligence Agency, or the CIA. Which replaces the OSS, which was disbanded in 1945, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, it's a civilian agency, which is important. It's not, a mili- it's not under military control. Hmm. Now, what Truman wants is he just wants them to gather intelligence, organize that intelligence, and then provide it to the Pentagon. That sounds like this CIA fact book thing that you can find on the internet, right? Yeah, like, which is super handy and I use all the time. Yeah, so there's, if you haven't checked it out, there's the CIA fact book and you can find out pretty much anything you want about it. It was like the Wikipedia before Wikipedia. Yeah. You know, it was in the 90s. Like what's, I don't know. What's the population of? Iceland. Yeah. You know, what's their, their democratic, poli- or what's their politics like, that kind of stuff. Yeah. What are the main exports of Trinidad? So that's what it should have been, or that was its, its initial... Yeah, but there was uh, the Department of Defense at the time wanted them to carry out military intelligence um, and some covert actions. Mm-hmm. And the State Department wanted them to concentrate on global political change, to fight against communism itself. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, the CIA sort of becomes a, a combination of all of these things. Now, in order to understand how this works, let's look at one of one of their first big excursions. Mm-hmm. Something that originally when they did it was considered a huge success, a real feather in their cap. Okay. And then as we'll see, 
not so much. Maybe it doesn't go so well. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Iran. All right. All right. So Iran, um, I mean, Persia in general is an ancient, uh, an ancient culture, an ancient language, rich in history and, and stories and art. And it's, I'm not going to be able to explain Iran in, no. in a couple sentences. Oh, good. Oh, goodness. No. But, but, but here we go. Here, okay. Well, dude, we're going to try anyway. Right. Okay. So a couple important things about Iran. Um, it was actually a fairly new country at this point. Mm-hmm. It had, of course, been Persia before that. It becomes Iran. It had been, as Iran in the 1930s, it was led by a shah, which is sort of a, another word for like a king. Okay. That kind of deal. Um, his son, Shah Pahlavi, takes over during World War II. And in 1949, there's an assassination attempt on the Shah, which leads him to try to increase his political and legislative power, because, of course, this is always what happens with any kind of monarch. They always Mm -hmm. want to grab as much control as possible. But uh, what he finds instead is that there starts to be a, a real movement in Iran towards parliamentary democracy, to move away from a monarchy and towards a system where the Shah is sort of a figurehead, and instead the people get to vote on who they want representing them in government. Wow. Democracy. I mean, that sounds... So from my background, more in West, trained more in Western politics, that sounds like whatever England has, a parliamentary monarchy, I think. Yeah, where so, you have a royal family, but they're yeah. also mostly for like parades and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> and so you have something to put on your money. Yeah, exactly. So the Shah's not too happy about this, but I mean, Shah Pahlavi, and this will come up a lot, he's not a real strong leader. Mm. Like he inherits his throne, right? which I don't think necessarily makes for a strong leader. It's right, one of right. the many, many, many reasons why A, you shouldn't have royal families, and B, when you have a democracy, you shouldn't try to have royal families by just electing, electing the same family members over and over again, and then sons and daughters and so forth. In Iran in the 1950s, you see this movement towards democracy, which you would think the Americans would be on board with, because one of the things that the American government always claims is that they are pro-democracy. That's their thing. Yeah, that's their deal. So you would think, ah, the Americans will be super happy about the fact that Iran is going towards democracy. Except here's the problem with democracy. Uh The people that win are the people that the people of that country elect, not necessarily the people that you want. Right. No, that is actually the problem with democracy experienced by those people inside the country themselves. I mean, every election, I'm like, no, that's not what I wanted. (laughs) Those idiots are the wrong people. Man, oh man. I mean, democracy is a very infuriating political process. Yes, but... It's the, what did Churchill say? The worst political system, but for all the others we've tried. Except for all the other ones. So after the Shah tries to sort of consolidate power in the monarchy and and tries to move back to a a much more kind of royalist notion of power, you see an anti-Shah movement coming up, led by a political figure named Mohammed Mossadegh. And Mossadegh uh, starts an anti-monarchist party in Iran called the National Front. Mm -hmm. Now, for people who understand European politics, that's not the same National Front. Not the same one. Not the same one. Okay, this is a... What, what is the difference between the national fronts in Europe that you might know? Well, the national fronts in Europe are basically... Well, I mean, actually, a lot of them are kind of fascist, racist outfits. Or, yeah. on the other hand, there are um, kind of communist... Um, some, of they, some of them will use the same kind of language. Yeah, this one is more communist. In order to explain the unbelievably complex situation of Iran... You could basically say that there's a few conflicting interests, and you can break it into categories. There is democratic interests versus monarchist, people who want democracy versus people who want the royal family. There is, of course, because it's the 50s, there's capitalist versus communist, because it's the Cold War. There is secular, the idea that that your government should be run on principles of reason and rationality rather than religion, versus religious. And then you have people who want an independent new Iran, versus people who want to maintain links with the colonial powers, mostly England. Hmm. So any group that you encounter is going to be some kind of combination of those different interests, and you could probably find some group somewhere for every possible combination. So Mossadegh, who's going to be a very important figure here, is 
pro-democratic, pro-secular, pro-independent, and sort of slightly communist. Okay. That's the one that's going to get him in trouble. Right, okay. So he gets elected uh, in a fair election. And the first thing he does, or one of the first things he does, is going to make him some very powerful enemies because one of the first things he does is he says, I think that the oil of Iran, because of course Iran is filled with oil, he says, I think the oil of Iran belongs to the people of Iran. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> I could have told you that was going to be That's a problem. Gonna be, it's going to be a problem. So, hold on. Just a time check. Where are we in this story? What is the uh, date at which he becomes president? So... Let's say let's let's put it 1951. Let's, okay. let's let's pick 1951. Mossadegh is elected and wants to nationalize oil. Okay. Now this is a problem for the British huh. because the British, going back to sort of colonialism, the British feel like the the oil of Iran should really belong to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, right? Okay. Which event eventually becomes British Petroleum. British Petroleum BP, right? Yeah, okay. Which eventually becomes BP. And so Mossadegh actually argues, and he says, well, we'll what, if we, what if we gave the British half of the profits? Mm. That still seems like that's a lot of profits. Mm-hmm. But the British are like, how about we have all of the profits? Mm-hmm. Because that's our oil. And Mossadegh says, nope, I'm going to nationalize this oil. So what happens next is that the British have a blockade. Uh, they threaten uh, economic sanctions. And this badly injures the economy of Iran, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only that, but the fact that England pulls out all of their technology, Mm -hmm. all of their resources, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it becomes difficult for the Iranians. They're going to have to build an entire structure now Mm -hmm. to get this oil. And so there's a couple years that are a bit tricky and a bit -hmm. uh, bit shaky. The British go to the Americans at this point and say, listen, we want your help. We got to get rid of this Mossadegh guy in Iran because he is hurting our oil profits. And at the time, the American president is Truman. He's a bit reluctant. Again, he's he's not much of a, a person who is that wild about interfering with other countries. But in 1952, Eisenhower gets elected, mm-hmm. and he's more willing to listen. Oh, okay. And this seems like a job, like somehow taking out the leader of a country who's been democratically elected. This seems like a job. For the CIA? For the CIA. Because they can't just go to war with Iran. Oh. The Korean War is going on at that at that moment. Right. And so, like, America doesn't want to fight two giant wars. Well, and there's no political legitimacy for going in and taking out a, a democratically elected leader who wants to give the profits for the oil industry back to his people. That's a bad look. That's a bad look. That is a bad look. So that seems like a very convenient thing then to have a secret organization that can do that on your behalf. Yeah, and it sort of keeps your hands clean. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, whoa, that's a weird thing that just happened in Iran. Right. So how to do it? Well, this is what they decide. They start a plan. It's called Operation Ajax. Mm-hmm. Now, the goal of Operation Ajax is going to be to remove Mossadegh, install the Shah as dictator, crush communism in Iran, and grab some of that sweet, sweet oil. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't... Of, of, of course, grabbing the sweet, sweet oil, that was just an incidental thing, right? I mean, it was really about crushing communism. Well, but... that's that's interesting. Like, I've been, <laughs> I've been looking into this, and it seems like... I can't tell if the oil was a nice side effect of crushing the communism or right. if crushing the communism was a side effect of grabbing the sweet, sweet oil. Interesting. But the British agreed. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll like give you some of the oil. Okay. We'll let some American corporations in. We okay. won't have the monopoly anymore if you help us get rid of Mossadegh. But then how do you do it? They were aided by the fact that this economic disaster had hit Iran and all this instability because, of course, people become very frightened in moments of economic instability. And so Mossadegh's support starts to waver a little bit. And he declares emergency powers. He starts to think, do things like he jails his opponents. And, and this is one thing that definitely hurts him with the Americans, in order to maintain his power, he has to start making some alliances with some of the other groups mm-hmm. of Iran. Mm-hmm. And the group that he becomes closest with is a political party called Tudekh. Mm-hmm. And they are hardcore communists. Okay. And so then at this point, uh, the Americans can say, oh, well, if you're joining up with the communists, then like all bets are off, gloves are off. It right. is on. We are going to take you out somehow. But how? Here's what happens. And then 
after I explain what happens, we'll go back and we'll look at sort of the details of how these things happen. Okay. Increasingly, you see more and more unrest in Iran. You see more and more riots. Some of these riots become very violent. It, it seems like Mossadegh's supporters become more violent and more communist mm. and start like wrecking stores and marching through the streets. Hmm. And this scares like the just everyday people of Iran who start to think, oh, this Mossadegh guy, is, he's like a radical. Mm-hmm. He's not here to help the people of Iran. He's here to like, he's scary. He's a scary guy. Now, at this point, the Shah, who had been a figurehead at this point, just leaves completely. Oh, okay. He leaves the country. He'll do this a lot. Uh-huh. I don't think too much of the Shah as like, he's not a great brave leader. Right, right, right. Whenever there's trouble, the Shah sort of takes off. And so the Shah takes off. But there's chaos in Iran to the point where eventually it seems like there's massive public support against Mossadegh. Uh, there is all of this anti-Mossadegh feeling. And there is a coup. Uh, the military sort of seizes control of the country under a guy called General Fazlullah Zahidi. And this is seems to uh, an average Iranian on the street as... Just an organic thing that happened. Because because the political party is becoming so radical. Yeah, and right. because of the violence in the streets, people right. are scared. They right. want stability. Right. 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 And right. that stability, of course, will show up in the form of the Shah coming back and saying, guys, what if we get rid of democracy? What if we just put me in as dictator? Mm-hmm. And so this is what happens. The Shah returns in 1953... He declares that Mossadegh is now a criminal, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's dismissed from power. He's replaced by this General Zahidi, who was sort of famous for working with the Nazis during World War II. Oh, dear. At this point, Mossadegh tells his supporters. He's like, okay, because Mossadegh's supporters have been taken to the streets. There's been rioting. And Mossadegh tells his supporters, okay, everybody calm down. Mm-hmm. Everybody return to your homes. Everybody be cool. I think that like we can get through this without violence. Mm-hmm. This is a big mistake because as soon as his supporters are all at home and they've put down their weapons, then this is the opportunity to just basically arrest Mossadegh. Uh, they take a tank to his house, they Whoa. shoot into his house with okay. the tank and they grab him and he surrenders to prevent further violence. Right. At this point, Zahidi, General Zahidi, the former Nazi, takes control of the country and then he gives it over to the Shah and now they no longer have a democracy. Now they have a monarchist dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So, what actually happened? Right. Well, behind the, uh, behind the scenes, the CIA had been talking to the Shah. And they said, listen, you play ball with us and we'll put you in power. And the Shah wasn't too sure about this. I mean, at first, even the Shah had supported the nationalization of oil. But as he started getting stripped of his powers by Mossadegh, he became more amenable to the CIA. Right. And also the CIA said, well, we'll take you out too if you don't play ball. And he said, play ball! Yes. (laughs) And so then what the CIA starts to do is they hire goons. Mm. They go into Iran, which is in a state of chaos anyway, and they hire a bunch of goons, and these goons pretend to be Tudeh and Mossadegh supporters. And so when those supporters are in the streets rioting and smashing up stores, they're not doing that because they're angry communists. They're doing that pretending to be angry communists, actually being paid by the CIA. Right. And and when you were telling this story, as you started to tell it, I'm, I, I was thinking to myself, okay, I've seen this story before. Now, I haven't because in this version, this is maybe the first time the CIA is pulling something like this. But so often afterwards, you discover that some of the most violent extremist agitators in this or that protest were actually operatives on behalf of the CIA trying to make the outfit seem as completely ridiculous as possible. Yeah. So this is a this is something that goes back or that happens over and over again. It's a good move. It is a good move. Because it scares people and it makes sure the people that you're attacking it makes them look angry and radical. Yeah. And the people who are neutrals are convinced that not to join up. 
Yeah, because most people are just trying to get through their day. Most yeah. people are just trying to raise their families, go to their jobs, right. live their lives. And even if you may agree with the general principles of the protesters, you certainly don't agree with the way they're going about it. Yeah. Oh. And to make it even better, not only did the CIA hire goons to pretend to be angry communists supporting Mossadegh, and they would do things like they would uh, they'd, they'd burn down pictures of the Shah while chanting Mossadegh's name. Mm. They were, they were being very anti-religious mm-hmm. in a country which, of course, has a long religious tradition. Right, right, right. But just to make sure that the point was made all the way, the CIA also hired a second group of goons to protest the protesters. Okay. So now you'll have like a fight in the streets. Yeah. And it looks like there's chaos, but actually both sides of that have just been funded by the CIA. Right. I don't know if you know this. Do they know that they're being funded by the CIA? Well, this is interesting because... The uh, the goons know, or they know that oh, they've I been see. they they know they've been given money to do this. Okay, but when, for example, Tudeh, the the Communist Party, when they see a bunch of angry Tudeh yeah. supporters out in the streets, yeah. they also take to the streets. Ah, uh, so they don't like. Then it becomes almost an organic protest. Right, 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 right. Because just of the the, the nature of how we are social beings and right. things like anger are very contagious. Right. Okay. So it turns into a pretty like they spark a pretty massive, like it worked bit of chaos. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And not only that, but uh, a CIA agent actually bombs the house of a religious leader, mm-hmm. and then blames they blame uh, Tudek, they blame the communists for that too, mm-hmm. which I think that's a false flag technically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if you attack something and pretend it was somebody else, that's right. that's a false flag. See our episode on false flags. Yeah, and so now the people of Iran are terrified. There's violence in the streets. Right. They don't necessarily they, realize that... They, they are primed for a return of order. Yeah. And when we want order, often we'll look back. Mm-hmm. And we, sure. when we look back, we can't help but sort of move back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's what happens. And now the Shah seizes control, August 22nd. And now he doesn't have to worry about democracy. He doesn't have to worry about right. parliament. He is the dictator of Iran. Right. And he has been put there, and he knows this. He has been put there in part by the CIA. Right. He owes the Americans big time. Right. So now, that's interesting for an observer like me who was born after most of this goes down and, you know, grows up. You have this image of the world, I guess, depends on where you grew up, but you might have this image like I did of the world in which there are these progressive secular countries, you know, Canada, Germany, Switzerland, places like that, right? And then you have these, these quote-unquote, other countries, mm-hmm. the kind of scary, dictatorial, religiously fanatic, seemingly stuck in some medieval mindset, unwilling to change. You know, if there's a use of technology, it seems inevitably just be to hurt people. You know, guns, fine, but medical technology, no. Yeah. So I remember thinking to myself, as a kid, you know, as a kid in the 80s, like, what's up with a place like Iran? Like, how come? Like, why is it like that? And of course, as a kid, you come up with a very simplistic explanations to things. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That's just how, quote unquote, they are. That's how they are. You know? And of course, the other thing as a kid is all of the information you're getting basically from movies. That's right. Like if, when you imagine a country in your head as a kid, you're imagining the Hollywood movie version of that country. Yeah, and I'm young enough to have made the transition to where all evildoers were Russians. Sure. To where in the 90s, all evildoers in uh, motion picture and in television are, again, quotes around here, Arabs, people from the Middle East. I know Persians and Arabs see themselves as radically different, but, you know, (laughs) for American audiences, that was not a distinction that was played up much in the movies. So it's just so fascinating hearing your brief recount of this history how this was a country that was go- seemingly going in a progressive sec- potentially secular direction yep. certainly not hurtling towards or it wasn't always some kind of medieval religious backwater no and i'm not even saying that not. that's certainly not what the iranian citizens today are no but that you know what as an outsider looking at this government looking at the kind of religious governmental dictatorship you think oh my goodness this is very Mm anti-modern and yet it was made that way 
in very recently. Yeah. It wasn't, it's not a holdover from some ancient period. And why was the Iranian democracy destroyed? It was destroyed to help the profits of British oil companies, American oil companies, and to a degree to fight the Soviet Union. Yeah, I mean, even if we take it in its most generous interpretation, which is the oil was incidental to destroying communism, Mm -hmm. it's still quite remarkable that in the name of communism, what is actually a greater threat here? Especially if you're an American sitting at home. Why do you care one way or the other? But if you're going to intervene, what's the bigger threat here? Is it some kind of religious monarchy? Or is it the spread of global communism? I mean, I don't know. It seems Well, that's interesting that you say that because, of course, let me talk a little bit about the Iran that the Shah makes mm. after this revolution. Because in some ways, the Shah moves towards modernity. Right. Uh, there is more, uh, I, there's th- more freedom. There's That's uh, true. I am doing some historical conflation here. We do have yes. to separate the Shah from then the subsequent revolution yeah, that we'll comes get, after yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get to that one. Sorry. Oh, history is the best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that the Shah does, I mean, he is a dictator. And as a dictator, he has close to absolute power. I mean, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because I think to a degree it's sort of accurate. Mm. Power corrupts. Right. And so increasingly, he becomes more despotic. He becomes more opulent. His hats get giant. He, uh, like, his, his wealth becomes sort of absurd, and he becomes this extraordinarily wealthy person in a country where that wealth has not gotten to the people of the country of yeah. Iran. Uh, not only that, to hold control of his, uh, of his dictatorship, in 1957, he forms SAVAK which is the National Organization for Security and Intelligence. They're his secret police force. They're terrible. Mm. They are terrible. And actually, Lee and I discussed this before the podcast, how much of this to get into, because on the one hand, we want people to understand how bad the torture was that Savak was carrying out on the people of Iran. On the other hand, like we, we don't know what you guys have been through when you're listening to these podcasts. We don't want you to like hear something awful and then have it sort of make you think of something in your own life or just ruin your commute or whatever. So so the torture was terrible. It was terrible. Can, and we like, will give one one example of one thing just to just so you know and this is comes with a trigger alert. So here it comes. Well, there there's the typical things they used and this is against political opponents of the Shah. They used electric shock. They used whipping. They used beating. Uh, they would pull teeth. They would pull fingers. Okay, 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 okay. And I haven't even gotten to the bad <laughs> stuff. It gets worse. Well, okay, but it gets so worse. Is, but that's enough. This is legitimate torture. Yeah. This isn't the kind of. I mean, I don't know what illegitimate torture, but this is like this is really what pe- when you think about torture, it's they bad. were doing it. Yeah, and they did it a lot. Okay, and, and basically, they did it for the purposes of maintaining the Shah's grip on power. Now, because he had critics. He had one critic, a cleric, a religious leader, a guy called Khomeini, who, of course, you remember, he was a critic of the Shah. He's arrested in the early 60s, and then he gets exiled to France. Uh, While he's in France during the 60s and 70s, he's recording tapes critical of the Shah, and they're smuggling those into Iran, and people are kind of passing them around Mm -hmm. and copying them and listening to them, just sort of interesting. So by 1975, the Shah has been in power for a long time. His Savak uh, secret police have been torturing for a long time. Here's a quote from Amnesty International about the Shah. The Shah of Iran retains his benevolent image despite the highest rate of death penalties in the world, no valid system of civilian courts, and a history of torture which is beyond belief. 1975, the Shah has about 100,000 political prisoners. Wow. That's just political prisoners. At that point, there had been maybe somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 Iranians who had been murdered during protests by the security forces. So this is a situation that the people of Iran are like living under a dictatorship Mm -hmm, now. mm -hmm. They had a democracy. They lost that democracy. The CIA interfered with that democracy. Mm -hmm. And now they're living under this dictator. Mm -hmm. In 1975, the Shah abolishes rival political parties. So now he is the only party. Uh, economically, there's there's trouble. Unemployment was high. Of course, economic inequality was high. Of course. There had been a lot of inflation, so people were having a hard time making ends meet. And then in 1978, there is a protest in Jalis Square in Iran. And during that protest, the protesters are fired upon by the security forces of the Shah. 
And this was weird to research because I heard somewhere between 88 and 15,000 people were killed. Huh, that is a spread there. That's a real spread. Yeah. I wasn't able to figure out exactly how many people. Uh, the government said 88 people. Um, Michel oh, okay. Foucault, actually. Uh, oh, yeah? Uh, the French yeah. uh, theorist. He researched it, and he said it was more like 4,000. But the day, September 8th, 1978, is referred to as Black Friday. And that's okay. really the day when the Shah's power starts to crumble. Hmm. Because what happens is this, there's this like feedback loop. Because there's small demonstrations protesting the Shah, which then get responded to with violence, mm-hmm. which means that then you have larger demonstrations responding to the violence, right. which get responded to with violence, right. which causes a larger demonstration, more violence. It's and so, amazing how often regimes sow the seeds of their own destruction. Yeah. It is really a play. It's, it's I mean, it's it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, we, we see things like, you know, you'll have a, a starving populace, but you've got Fabergé eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, the people can't make ends meet and you've got a gold toilet. Yeah. And it's like, come on, we're going to take you out. It starts to get uh, much more sort of angry. And it, the Shah, at this point, when he sees how angry the people have become, does what he does. He heads out of there. Yeah, he, okay, he leaves the country. Sense. So January 16th, 1979, he flees Iran. At this point, he's also kind of ill. He's got cancer. Uh, and he flees Iran and eventually goes to the United States. Now, Khomeini comes back from France, and everyone's like, hey, it's that exiled guy. Uh, The monarchy collapses. This uh, revolution, when it first started out, it was like a revolution of the Iranian people. Mm -hmm. And there were middle-class people and professors and doctors and old people and young people and religious people. Like, everybody was in on this revolution. But ultimately, only one group is going to seize control in the chaos. Mm -hmm. And the group that seizes control in the chaos is Khomeini and his extremely hardline religious movement. Mm -hmm. And so at at first people are happy about this, but then uh, the Iranian government under Khomeini, they start to really put some hardcore religious laws in. They ban alcohol. Women are now forced to cover their hair. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people who were excited about the Shah getting taken out, now they're like, oh, we've, we've moved from like a, like a dictatorship monarchy yeah. into a theocracy now. Right. Yeah. So it's before the problem was, yeah, a, a sort of a military, a monarchical but military dictatorship, which is suffocating you politically. Yep. It's funneling money in not necessarily to the people who need it. It's, it's going to the Shah. It's going to the Americans. It's going to the British. But now, now you have a theocracy. Right. Now you have a fundamentalist religious dictatorship and they care not just about who gets the money but like how you dress what you think and who you're marrying those kinds of things yeah and to make things because history is uh interesting and whenever i say interesting i always mean terrible right and bloody to give you an idea of the transition i I talked about savak the this group of secret police who were carrying out all these tortures Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think happened to a lot of those members of SEVAC that have been torturing the Iranians after the revolution? What's, what would be a really pessimistic, cynical thing to imagine what happened to these secret police torturers? Promoted. Yeah. They basically just form the basis of the Ayatollah's secret right. police. Sure. Of okay. course. Of course. The difference is now they grow beards. Right. Okay. But same guy, now they have a beard. Right. Meet the new boss, same as the right. old boss. It's like, oh man, you tortured me under the Shah, and now you're torturing me into the Ayatollah. Mm-hmm. Ah, Hakuna Matata. I don't think I'm using that right. I don't think I've ever used that right. All right, another thing that happens during this, November 4th, 1979, specifically having to do with America. During the revolution, Iranian college students take over the U.S. embassy in Tehran. Now, this is the very embassy where the CIA plotted Operation Ajax to yeah. overthrow Mossadegh back in the 50s. And they take a bunch of Americans hostage. And they demand that President Carter has to return the Shah so he can face punishment for all of his terrible crimes. They demand that the Shah's wealth is released to the people of Iran. They uh, want the American government to promise not to interfere in Iran's politics again. And they want the American government to admit they did Operation Ajax and apologize for Operation Ajax. This, okay, if we put this in the context of the fact that this was, these were CIA operations and therefore secret, 
This whole Iranian hostage crisis thing has got to come like a lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky. I mean, it just got to seem so bizarre to the American to people. the American people watching this on TV. You know, I mean, we weren't doing anything. Think the Americans, right? C- c- citizens, civilians, everybody loves themselves, us, right? We're Walt not Disney doing and McDonald's we're just, and stuff. Exactly, we're just sitting here minding our own business, and then you know, suddenly I mean, people are burning American flags or stepping on the flag, taking over the embassy, uh, taking people hostage. I mean, that hostage crisis. I remember that lasted what, like four hundred days? Four hundred and forty-four days. These people were kept hostage. I mean. And, and not only that, there's all this chanting, death to America. It almost seemed like the revolution at that point wasn't anti-Shah, but it was anti-America. And I just, I just, that just would not make any sense, would it? Well, to the people who didn't know the background, of course, it made no sense at all. To people who knew that the Shah was there because of the CIA. But who would have known that at that time? That would have been maybe Iranians. The Iranians knew it. And the CIA in the United States. Yep. And that's why what's interesting is when you see the flags burning, when you see people chanting death to America in Iran, when you see people like stepping on the American flag or taking over the embassy, whereas the American people might have asked, well, why do they hate us? Mm -hmm. One group of people that didn't ask that were people at the CIA. Mm -hmm. They never asked, oh, why do the Iranians hate us? Mm -hmm. What instead the CIA said at the time was, "Uh uh-oh, it looks like we might have some blowback from Operation Ajax. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the way you said blowback there sounds like it's an official CIA term it, for them doing this kind of stuff. It is an official CIA term. So <laughs> what it. is blowback? What is blowback? Well, all right. Having asked the question, I will try and answer it. I mean, based on your story, but also on the what I'm going to tell soon, it sounds like it's the unintended consequences of a secret operation suffered by the civilians of the country that did that op- secret operation. So to put bones on that rather vague definition, when the CIA goes into another country and, and causes some trouble there, and when later that country does something to the Americans... Leading that's the American called, people to be like, what? Yeah, and that's called... that Them doing it to the Americans is called blowback, and then the American people are like, what? Because that doesn't make any sense to them because they don't know the background. They don't know the story that led up to, I'm not justifying it, but that led up rationally to why somebody would think that, you know, burning American flags would be a good symbolism or a good symbolic statement to make at this point. And then rather than tell the truth, what happens, what tends to happen from American governments is rather than saying, this is because of stuff that we did, instead they'll give you something like, well, they hate our freedoms. Right. They hate democracy and freedom. They hate democracy and freedom. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're Iran and you hear that, you're like, oh, we hate democracy. Right, right, right. We had democracy, we had democracy. taken away from us. <laughs> okay. Man, oh, man. But surely this is the only time this has ever happened. And of course, in the sarcastic tone you say that, you can tell, <laughs> obviously, this is not the only time that this happened. And now I'm realizing... This was like an hour already. This was a podcast. This was a podcast. So, so it looks we'll like have we have to have part two. Part two so of Blowback. We'll come, pa- we'll come back uh, part two of Blowback. Uh, in the meantime, a couple things. Uh, I would just like to thank everybody who's been writing to us. We, like, we always read everything. I'm thank trying you. to reply to everybody. And yeah, we just we really enjoy reading your comments. It makes us feel real happy. Yeah. And we need that. Keep, keep a comment. Because normally we're real sad. That's right. Well, do it this kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much for those emails. So what we'll do is uh, I'm just going to leave should, you. Should we maybe uh, plug our email address just one more time since we're on the topic of emails? Oh, yeah, right. It's podcast at theuncoverup.com. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to come back in the next episode, and we're going to look at another... I think, Lee, you're going to take the lead on this. That's right. I'm going to look at what happened in Afghanistan in the 1970s. Right. And wouldn't you know it, there might just be some blowback that comes out of that, too. Okay. Thank you, CIA. Although the CIA continues to evolve, its main responsibilities have not changed. The CIA's mission today is to collect intelligence, perform all source analysis, and conduct covert action at the direction of the president. To accomplish this, CIA officers work in one of four directorates, the National Clandestine Service.